Good morning, everyone. Hello. Thank you for coming. We're going to get started. We're a little minutes behind schedule. Um, welcome. Our panel is called, what is our panel called? Uh, Critical Perspectives on the Venezuelan Crisis. My name is Naomi Schiller. I teach anthropology at Brooklyn College, CUNY. Um, and I have the pleasure this morning of moderating this panel with these fantastic um, scholars and comrades who work on Venezuela. Um, so I'm going to ask them actually to introduce themselves. And should we perhaps follow the, and I'm going to moderate the discussion afterwards. So I'll throw out a few questions at the beginning of the Q&A in response to um, the contributions here. Um, and then we'll open it up to, to the room. Okay. So order, does anybody have a feeling about order? Um, Gabe, I think, yeah, go ahead. Okay. Um, all right. Well, welcome. Thanks all for showing up on uh, early <laughs> in uh, Sunday. Um, so I'm Gabriel Hetland. I'm a professor, assistant professor of Latin American, Caribbean, and U.S. Latino studies um, at SUNY Albany, um, and I've written a fair amount about Venezuela in various places. Um, so I'll just jump right in so we have plenty of time for the discussion. And what I want to talk about today is the sort of positive and negative lessons that Venezuela has for thinking about socialism. And to some extent, the negative lessons are sort of obvious. Venezuela right now would not be considered a model for anyone. It's in a very deep crisis. It's um, an extremely difficult situation. But I think there are positive lessons that we can take from the entire two-decade Chavista, ongoing two-decade Chavista experience. Um, and I'm going to use a little bit of palancas to sort of frame uh, some of the things that I'm talking about. And actually, I'm going to do it with multi-technology because I <laughs> um, have some stuff here. So the first sort of framework I think that's useful uh, for thinking about it, Venezuela is the notion that Polanzas puts forward that to get to socialism, and specifically to get to a democratic form of socialism, we have to think about a dual struggle that happens both within the state and outside the state. Um, and so he talks about um, this as follows, a struggle within the state, not simply in the sense of a struggle enclosed within the physical confines of the state, but a struggle situated all the same on the strategic terrain constituted by the state, a struggle, in other words, whose aim is not to substitute the worker state for the bourgeois state through a series of reforms designed to take over one bourgeois state apparatus after another and thus conquer power, but a struggle which if you like, is a struggle of resistance, a struggle designed to sharpen the internal contradictions of the state to carry out a deep-seated transformation of the state. And elsewhere, he talks about sort of as a democratization within the, straight, within the state. Um, and then the second, on the other hand, he says a parallel struggle, a struggle outside the institutions and apparatuses, giving rise to a whole series of, inst of instruments, means of coordination, organs of popular power at the base structures of direct democracy at the base. This form of struggle would not aim to centralize a dual power type of counterstate, but would have to be linked with the first struggle. Um, and he talks also about the need at some point for a decisive break or a series of breaks, so it's not like this is a reformist strategy. Um, but I think thinking about this dual struggle is useful for thinking about what happened uh, in the Chavista period, especially in the earlier years of Chavismo. Um, I think if you go back to 2003 through 2012, you could see a real development of both of these forms of struggle. Um, there was a clear struggle within the state. The state was never fully taken over by revolutionaries, but there was lots of sort of 
uh, revolutionary actors within the state at the local level, at the national level, at the regional level, and there was lots of non-revolutionary actors within the state at all of these different levels. And if you look at particular examples, I know uh, cases that are outside of Caracas, uh, Municipio Torres, which is in the west of Venezuela, which is a fabulous example of this, where there was a um, radical mayor who got elected against the ruling party, actually, from the left. Uh, in 2004 and put together a participatory budget where they gave 100% of uh, the proceeds to um, citizens formed in council. So these direct democracy organs at the base, which were struggling constantly against the bureaucracy, constantly against the ruling party's local and regional leadership, which was trying to block it. But eventually this mayor, Julio Chavez, got incorporated but didn't really stop the struggle. So we saw that sort of dual struggle to transform the nature of that state and then transform it outside of the state. He rose within the PESUV, which he eventually joined. Um, he was part of a radical current in 2010, which a number of other leftists um, within the party itself were trying to sort of struggle for uh, elimination of bureaucratism, elimination of corruption, a sort of full-scale transition to a sort of more revolutionary form of popular power. So that was an important struggle. It's not gone by any means, but it's in a different form today. Um, so I think that that's a positive lesson on the one hand for thinking about what Venezuela can offer. And I think it's really important today to hold on to that positive lesson in the face of Lots of people, certainly on the right, but also in the center and the left even, um, who want to throw away the entire Chavista experience and say that it's purely disaster and this is something we shouldn't do. There's lots of things they did which we should do. We should, in fact, develop those organs of popular power. We should sharpen the struggles within the state. Um, and at the sort of height of that, they were massively successful in a sort of pure electoral democracy sense. Um, they won over and over in clean elections. Uh, the Carter Center went down a number of times and said that it was completely technically free. A number of us have gone down and seen the elections in action. So that was actually happening. It was very impressive, and I think we should defend those gains that happened, while also, of course, um, criticizing them, I think using the work of Gio and Naomi and Andrea and myself to sort of look at the contradictions at the time, even at the height of Chavismo, um, what was going on. But I think, secondly, we have to pay attention to the negative lessons. We have to pay attention to the crisis that has emerged, and we have to think really critically what are the lessons for socialists today for thinking about that crisis. And I think here we'll probably just to preface things and sharpen the knives a little, um, we'll disagree a little bit on our analysis, but I think we agree on certain points. Um, that number one, there has been a US imperialist offensive against the Venezuelan government, which has gone back for two decades. This started in at least 2001, if not before, sharpened in 2002 with the coup, uh, 2002, 2003, the oil lockout, um, continuing through the present. Um, I mean, we're talking tens of millions of dollars, people coming to the White House, overt and covert forms of support for the radical right opposition. Um, which happened, led to a series of deaths in 2014, another series of deaths in 2017, more deaths in 2018, and this year in 2019 with Juan Guaido declaring himself president. So I think there's a clarity about opposing that, and I think if you look at popular movements in Venezuela now, they're very clear about rejecting U.S. interference and saying we should, be def we should resolve things ourselves. So that's a, a clear sort of uh, takeaway, and I think it's a fairly easy takeaway that we can all agree on. I think the harder takeaway is the internal sort of errors, dynamics, and I'd say even beyond errors that the Maduro administration has made over the last couple of years. And I think this gets to another lesson that Pulantzas puts on the table, which is the importance of trying to 
avoid what he talks about as statism, or I'll refer to as a status trap, where instead of actually moving in the direction of sharpening the struggles between sharpening the struggles within the state and also building these organs of popular power outside the state, you move increasingly in a direction where the state itself is taking all of the decisions, eliminating the organs of popular power in part by eliminating representative democracy and eliminating political pluralism. Um, this is very tricky because if you maintain political pluralism, as Polanca says, your enemies will use it. The bourgeois parties will use it. They will use it to attack you. They will do it in dirty ways that won't play by the right rules. So that's a clear danger. But if you eliminate those political freedoms, you lead to other dangers, which we can see happening in Venezuela today. Um, if you talk to grassroots organizers, which all of us have done and continue to do in 2015 and 2016 through the present, there was an increasing erosion of the relationship between the national leadership of the government and the ruling party and the grassroots sectors. They felt abandoned by the party. They felt as though the party wasn't paying attention to them anymore, even as early as 2015, 2016. Um, and I think we see a, a very clear sort of distancing from that. There was also a series of economic errors. Um, I think one of the most serious um, and avoidable errors was with currency policy, where the government maintained a fixed currency for years and years and years, allowing hundreds of billions of dollars in corruption. This is um, you know, difficult to fully document, but there's very clear evidence that this has been happening for many, many years. Um, and there was evidence, I mean, there was leftist economists within Venezuela, leftist economists outside of Venezuela saying, here's a solution, float your currency, um, and you will eliminate a lot of these problems. They repeatedly failed to do that. And a key reason they were failing to do that, I think it, it's hard to avoid the conclusion, is that there was corrupt networks inside and outside the state um, that were blocking that pathway. Um, so by failing to take that action, they increasingly had an untenable situation where they couldn't stay in power through the maintenance of electoral democracy. And over the last several years, they have moved to essentially eliminate many vestiges of electoral democracy. They have banned leading opposition candidates. Um, they've gone after other opposition parties. Some of this is with reason. Some of these opposition parties have a, you know, clearly not good history, clear lack of respect for democracy themselves. But one of the other consequences is that it has opened up space for them to go after the left within Venezuela, to close down possibilities of internal dissent. And that's what we're seeing increasingly happening. Um, Marea Socialista, which is a group that some of the people in the room may know about, was a leftist sort of critical Chavista current, which as early as 2015 was denied um, access to the ballot by the National Electoral Council with clear sort of um, indications that the Maduro administration was behind that. Um, this year, Marea Socialista, or Socialist Tide, um, this year, a dissident Chavista website, aporea.org, um, and I can give people the information about that if you want after, has been blocked within Venezuela from January by the government. So you can't access them through CanTV, the main sort of public internet provider within Venezuela. Um, there's also been a crackdown on popular protests happening in neighborhoods, and this is a sort of controversial thing. It, it happens through people who call themselves colectivos. I think Gio and other people will say they're not really colectivos, and I agree, but they are calling themselves colectivos. They are sort of armed gangs giving a very bad name to that organization, and they have been terrorizing people in popular neighborhoods at the same time as there's still lots of grassroots organizing going on. So there's a real crackdown on internal dissent. There's a real movement away from electoral democracy. 
Um, and there's been a series of sort of blockages of the possibility of an electoral solution to happening. So I just want to read one passage from, it's in Palantis, but actually Rosa Luxemburg, where she says, in place of the, this is about the Russian Revolution, which I think is relevant for thinking about what's happening now. In place of the representative bodies created by general popular elections, she's saying, Lenin and Trotsky have laid down the Soviets as the only true representation of the laboring masses. But with the repression of political life in the land as a whole, and I think we're seeing this in Venezuela now, life in the Soviets, the organs of popular power, must also become more and more crippled. Without general elections, without unrestricted freedom of press and assembly, without a free struggle of opinion, life dies out in every public institution, becomes a mere semblance of life in which only the bureaucracy remains as the active element. So the key question, and I'll end with this, is what do we do right now um, as the left in the US, as the left internationally? And I think clearly we want to be supporting popular movements in Venezuela. Clearly we have to oppose US intervention. A really important part of that actually, which gets too little attention, is opposing the absolutely brutal US sanctions regime, which is terrorizing the population even more. It's a key reason the crisis has gotten much, much worse. But I think we cannot cherry pick our evidence. We cannot cherry pick what we pay attention to. We have to pay attention to the suffering Venezuelan people are having right now. I didn't speak that much about the crisis, but at least 3.4 million people, according to the UN, and it seems fairly credible, have left Venezuela in recent years. There's massive poverty. I mean, anywhere from 50 to 90% of the population is living in poverty today. There's massive malnourishment. There's health crises, which as soon as statistics were released, the government fired um, the people who released those statistics literally the next day. So the Maduro administration deserves a lot of criticism for what's happening in Venezuela right now. It has a lot of opposition, not only from the elite and from the sort of traditional opposition, which is not anyone we want to be supportive of, but also from the mass of the population. Um, and so I think paying attention to their suffering, paying attention to their protests, which are happening for water, for electricity, for various crises, is essential for thinking about how do we actually support popular struggles. I think it's not entirely clear what the answer to that is. I think that we'll disagree in terms of whether or not to support Maduro at all. Um, I personally don't think that leftists in the U.S. should be giving cover to Maduro. I think it's an incredibly corrupt repressive regime, which is not a good path forward for popular movements within Venezuela, which is not in any way to say that U.S. intervention, in fact, the absolute opposite, U.S. intervention would be horrible, but there are other alternatives, which are not ones that you want to sort of go to the banner and say, yay, negotiations, compromise, talk to the opposition. But I think that is probably a necessary part of resolving the current crisis. Obviously getting rid of the U.S. sort of um, nastiness, but also getting rid of um, the horribleness that is the Maduro administration and figuring out some way to sort of finesse that, I think is necessary to do. Thanks. Thanks to everyone for coming out. I mean, I think people have been thinking about Venezuela a lot lately. I know we've been forced to talk about it a lot lately in the, in the press and elsewhere. Um, Can because you introduce yourself? I'm oh, sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> My name is George Cicarello Mar. <laughs> Thank you. Sorry. Um, I'm unemployed. Uh, but not for lack of, not for lack of trying, you know. Um, and I think you know the way I, I, I think we need to approach these questions is to understand, on the one hand, the nature of chavismo, on the second hand, to understand the nature of the crisis, um, and then to think through what's happening today, just in the last few months. Um, 
Chavismo, and some of this is basic, some of this is things that people already know. Chavismo was not about Chavez, right? The Bolivarian Revolution was not simply about this single individual, but was in fact produced through decades of struggles. And these struggles were for things that seem very familiar in Venezuela today, right? More direct democracy um, and socialism. An alternative to uh, the existing corrupt two-party democratic system on the one hand, um, and, and to uh, capitalism and, and, and later on to the imposition of a really brutal neoliberal structural adjustment in, in the midst of a crisis in the 1980s that felt a lot, I think, like the crisis that's happening in Venezuela today. Um, Chavismo was about the development of, and, and Gabe pointed to some of this already, the development of and the deepening of grassroots popular power, um, not just as an, as an alternative existing alongside the state, but as something that engaged directly with the government pushed it, radicalized it, in which there was for a, for a period um, an incredibly uh, useful and, and beautiful process of mutual interaction between uh, leadership in the state apparatus, which had taken over certain spaces of the state. Um, you know, so against those who think that we can't do anything with any parts of the state, but also against those that think it's as simple as taking the whole thing and, and we've won. Um, there was, uh, you know, people like Chavez in particular taking space, and using that space strategically to push and deepen uh, revolutionary popular power um, in the form of grassroots communal councils, communes, uh, deepening relationships with social movements. Um, and I think I agree roughly with the timeline that this went incredibly well up until about 2012. Um, the energy that Chavismo was able to generate from the grassroots level project into the state um, and, and, you know, and press forward the deepening of these different alternative structures that we, you know, that are that we still see today, uh, was incredible. The crisis um, of the present, I want to say, um, and I think it has to be said, is the crisis of a system, not the crisis of a government. Um, it's the crisis of a hundred years of oil, um, and the utterly perverse implications that this has for a national economy. People leaving the countryside, moving to the cities collapse in domestic production of things as basic as food um, so that you got by the 70s already you know uh, 80 more than 80 percent and then up to 90 percent of the population living in the cities um, and up to 90 percent or even more of the food that Venezuelans consume being imported from abroad this is this is classic oil economy there's so much money floating around from the oil it's much cheaper to just buy food imported than it is to uh, actually produce it domestically and decades of government abandonment of the countryside led to this now, Chavismo arrives with a strategy for dealing with this, and this strategy has some successes, um, but they're very much up and down, and they are impacted profoundly by the political winds and the economic winds. When it's election time, and you have a bunch of oil money, uh, and people need to be sort of kept happy, it's much easier, again, to just buy a bunch of food and sell it at subsidized rates uh, from, from abroad with that oil money than it is to deep do the really hard work of changing the economy, decentralizing the economy, production, um, and decentralizing the political apparatus of the state, although this was happening, you know, again, with some success. And that's why I said that the crisis that began to sort of unravel in 2013, 2014, 2015 um, had a lot to do with the crisis of the 1980s, um, because what you see are the same conditions. Um, you see the role of importations. You see the fact that when macroeconomic crisis hits um, and the state relies on these imports, um, you know, uh, you have a real crisis of food availability, which is why people began to riot as well in the 1980s. Um, and especially because corruption was brought up, you see that 
undeniable continuity of profound corruption in Venezuela, which has never been simply an affair of the state. I think we need to keep this in mind when we think about the present, but it's an affair of the state handing billions of dollars over to the private sector and asking that private sector to buy food to put on shelves. Um, and so I think that's important to say because we're, we're talking about uh, state officials being involved in corruption, but we're also talking about the private sector being an absolutely useless and cowardly sector um, that is, has been sucking money off of uh, the Venezuelan government for nearly a century. Um, the crisis, I think, and here I think we directly agree, uh, unraveled as a result of a relatively minor problem in the currency. That in 2013, many of us were saying, fix this, fix this, fix this, and it didn't happen. Um, I think there were more complex arguments about why that didn't happen. There were actually kind of Marxist arguments saying, well, it's kind of, it's neoliberal to adjust our currency to meet the global economy um, as a result of sort of supply and demand. I mean, I think that's kind of a silly argument, but it was an argument that was made consistently by some of the opponents. And so I think, you know, regardless of, of how and why that was made, um, the currency crisis began to unravel. And just to sort of give a rough understanding of, of it, it became a cycle in which the value of the black market dollar um, in Venezuela began to separate from the official value. And once it separates, um, what you have is hugely increased incentives for corruption, currency speculation, uh, and black market activity. In other words, if you then are a private company that's been handed a million dollars by the Venezuelan government, rather than actually import those goods, which you weren't very good at doing anyway, you might just take that million dollars and launder it on the black market for 10 million or for 100 million um, in, in Bolivar's and continue this cycle, which all of which created uh, real chaos at the center of the Venezuelan economy that impacted uh, importations that undermined the ability of the Venezuelan government to get the inputs necessary for domestic production. And what we've seen is, is really chaos since. That was then deepened, I mean, under you know some Obama sanctions really badly though starting in 2017 under the first round of Trump sanctions which um, made financial transactions incredibly difficult um, and this second round that was just instituted is it's really difficult to exaggerate how bad this recent round of sanctions is going to be and has been um, but we're talking in the you know on, in the range of 10 billion dollars annually um, from people who claim to care about the humanitarian uh, you know situation in Venezuela but know that they're going to be killing thousands and thousands of people uh, with that um, so what's happening in the process? Um, people may know there's a coup or an attempted coup, I should say on January 23rd, um, that, you know, we can talk about all the details of it in, in the question and answer if we want. There's no constitutional basis for it really. And the, and the ridiculousness of the constitutional argument has, uh, then played out over time because this Juan Guaido declared himself interim president, the interim presidency, even if you believe the bullshit argument that he gave, only lasts 30 days. But then by the end of the 30 days, the U.S. and others are still insisting that he was the interim president. So you have this moment where Elliot Abrams is being questioned and he's almost laughing and the journalists are almost laughing because it's all so ridiculous because they're saying uh, the constitutional argument for him taking power is that Maduro had abandoned the office, but they weren't going to start counting the 30 days of the interim presidency until Maduro was out of office, but he was only justified in taking that position because Maduro was, you know, was out of office. So, it, you know, it's, it's absurd. But then you have luckily turning points where, of course, uh, first of all, the U.S. government certainly and the Venezuelan opposition in some ways thought that they would win very quickly. They thought the coup would be a quick affair, the military would fragment, the population would revolt. None of that happened. 
And we need to ask ourselves, I think, why? And we need to ask ourselves similarly why in 2002, um, when a coup was successfully accomplished and Chavez was flown to uh, an island and kept prisoner and a press blackout was instituted so many people didn't really know what was going on from watching the media, um, why was that hundreds of thousands of people came out opposed that coup and forced the reversal of the coup and Chavez returned to power. These are things that were not expected, right? And so what we've seen is this incredible resilience of the Bolivarian process, which derives, again, not from some sort of quasi-theological identification with a single savior, but with the development of grassroots movements in, in, you know, in the poorest neighborhoods of Venezuela. For example, during the coup in 2002, the, you know, the expansion of grassroots uh, media and informal contacts that allowed people to disperse understandings and, and information about what was happening to come out and then oppose it. That resilience is still there today, despite everything, despite how bad it is, despite the fact that people know that the government bears some responsibility for this crisis, um, despite the fact that people's uh, quality of living has declined incredibly over the past couple of years, the resilience that we've seen is still surprising. It's still really shocking. Um, you know, this is a, if you look at the objective sort of like economic analysis and, uh, you know, uh, factors, you would say this government would have been overthrown a long time ago. But it's the development of a certain level of consciousness, the development of an understanding of what's happening, the overt action of the United States um, that have made, um, you know, that have allowed this, this process to survive for now. And again, this is a process that I value that I think a lot of us value for not only social welfare, which has collapsed in recent years, um, but for the expansion of directly democratic participatory democracy um, in Venezuela. Um, and this is, of course, absolutely worth preserving, but it's worth pointing out that many of these organizers, many of these activists are struggling today to find a path forward. Um, but they're looking precisely for a path forward, right? They're looking for a more socialist response, in part because they know quite correctly that Venezuela is not a socialist country. And we get to this question of like lessons of, you know, socialism. Not, it's not a socialist country, right? It's a country that's incredibly capitalist in which there are attempts to regulate and develop an alternative to capitalism. And as a result of having both of these present, you have a war at the center of the economy um, that is difficult to overcome in, under any circumstances, much less um, amid the crisis uh, that's occurring today. And the only alternative really comes by rethinking what it means to transform the Venezuelan economy, right? Um, and in this, you see the grassroots participatory production in communes where people get together directly and democratically and produce what they need locally and democratically and make those decisions. These are the sectors that provide a real alternative. The Venezuelan opposition has no alternative to what's happening today. Um, they would institute neoliberal uh, austerity that would make the poor suffer and bear the brunt of what's happening on the promise that it would stabilize the macroeconomic situation. That may or may not happen. Um, in the past, they've had, a, you know, across Latin America, you know, a very questionable record when it comes to actually delivering even on economic growth. Um, and the... The Venezuelan state, of course, has stumbled repeatedly when it comes to providing this alternative. Um, what does that mean for the present? Uh, I think a couple of points uh, are necessary. Maybe I'll forget them all. I don't know. Um, one crucial one, though, I think, is the fact that there is a huge 
an important gap for me uh, between criticism and opposition of the Maduro government, in opposition to the Maduro government. Um, criticism of the government happens every day, all day, at the hands of poor grassroots organizers in Venezuela. There is a constant <clears throat> criticism. And this is one of the strange caricatures that has existed in the press for the past two decades, is the idea that there's no criticism when opposition media sources, when, are, you know, of course, are constantly criticizing, uh, when opposition political leaders are, you know, calling for the death of the Chavista leadership occasionally, or calling for violent and brutal protests, or organizing coups. And yet, if this were an authoritarian society, they would all be in prison. They would, you know, and, and, and things would look very, very different. But what's more important, I think we agree, is this criticism from the grassroots, right? Um, but that criticism does not mean, and historically has not meant, very simply, an opposition to uh, the, the Maduro government. If anything, what we see is the opposite. What we see is that, despite everything, despite the difficulties, despite the missteps, um, most revolutionary grassroots organizers are with Maduro, not because they think he's perfect, not because they think that he's... Uh, done everything right, but because they see, on the one hand, the only path forward being through the Bolivarian process, um, but also because they recognize that, you know, for example, grassroots popular power expanded dramatically in the first two years of Maduro's presidency. Um, and that's something I think we would need to account for, um, you know, if we're really trying to, to grapple with what's really happened. Chavez died, and what you saw was the huge expansion. You saw a radical communes minister. You saw the huge expansion of support for the communes. Uh, and you saw Maduro declaring, of course, his loyalty to the communal projects and the, what he called the, uh, the obliteration of the, uh, of the bourgeois state, its replacement with, uh, with these communes. This has not happened, right? <laughs> but I think this is one of the things that we need to understand and explains in many ways why, you know, why some of the many of the same people that I think we sympathize with uh, continue to support this process as the way forward. Um, and I think the second question that I just want to raise as, uh, you know, to see, you know, where it, it goes has to do with how, what our metrics of success um, are. Hmm? Sorry, what our metrics of success are? How is it that we measure success? Um, because if I'm sensing maybe just a, a little tension in what, what you said, Gabe, um, on the one hand, we're talking about Pulances's understanding the need to push forward these alternatives um, and eventually, of course, to push beyond and break with uh, capitalism, with the state as it exists. And then on the other hand, I always get hesitant when, when it seems that, for example, as you put it at the end, pluralism, mechanisms of liberal democracy become, in a way, a, a measure of, of whether or not we're, we're doing that. Um, because I think these are very different kinds of things. Um, CLR James the great CLR James, struggled with these questions um, in the context of the French and Haitian revolutions. And, you know, put it maybe a little provocatively, but what he said is, listen, there was a good terror and there was a bad terror. And, I, and you did point to this, right, in your presentation. The good terror is, of course, when it's the class enemies who are being taken out, right? And the bad terror is what happened later when those same forces were turned on, uh, on, the, you know, on the workers, on the supporters of the revolution, on those who wanted to move further uh, and to move faster. Um, and I think that we need to maintain that kind of a distinction because I get worried about, you know, when, when I see people saying, well, a sign of the decline of the Bolivarian revolution is that these people are in jail with these opposition leaders. Um, when I think, and as you did suggest, I mean, a lot, if you ask many grassroots organizers, they wish more of them were in jail, right? They think they should have been in jail for decades um, because some of them are also war criminals. I mean, sorry, not war criminals, uh, 
you know, have committed crimes against humanity 20, 30 years ago as well. Um, and they're opponents of this revolutionary process. And um, this points toward the final piece, sorry, I'm going yeah, no, which is that I think for me, one of the biggest lessons about Venezuela is that, and about the reaction to it um, in and on the left, uh, especially internationally, is that I think we need to think a lot harder about what revolutionary transition looks like. And by that, I mean, transition looks hard. Building socialism is hard um, and it's bloody. And it's bloody because what we, I think, like to not think about is the fact that our enemies want to destroy this at all costs. And we've seen that over and over in Venezuela. Even before Chavez changed anything dramatically, there was a coup against him. Um, and that's when he realizes, he puts it, there's no negotiating with these people, right? You need to move forward into a more direct break with this existing order. I think that break should have happened sooner, when the economy was good, when the movements were at their height. It's difficult to, to carry that out today. But the fact that things get hard and the fact that things get ugly, um, for me, is not any indication that um, of the failure of socialism. It's literally inevitable, right? The fact that the economy is suffering a macroeconomic crisis when it's trying to create an alternative to global capitalism, for me, is not surprising at all. It's absolutely inevitable. Um, that's not an excuse for the government because of what it means is that when you take more seriously the fact that this aggression will constantly happen, uh, that Chavismo has been too generous with the private sector in terms of repeatedly relying on private uh, companies to kind of come in and, and help save the day economically um, when they've just turned around and stabbed the people in the back again. Um, and that break and that transition should have happened, I think, more directly and, and earlier. But that transition is incredibly difficult and we're seeing, I think, many of the fruits of that difficulty today. Hi, I'm Andreina. I'm a doctoral candidate at, um, of anthropology at CUNY. Uh, and I'm also a Venezuelan, <laughs> so I think I'm going to speak more as a Venezuelan, but also as an anthropologist. So, um, so this is great because it gives you know a bigger picture of what has happened and what, um, what is going on right now. I think my presentation is more has more to do with like I want to invite. Um, an analysis that's more like, I guess, phenomenological or existential, you know, about like what what it's meant for Venezuela to go through these processes of experimentation for you know 20 years, and, and how do we get, how did we get to the current moment, and and how do we think about a future, right? So I was thinking a lot about this idea of future, right, because. You know, the current crisis has analysts, you know, speculating about a, a future and, and what will happen in the future. Uh, but there's also very clear opposing and competing narratives about the future right now. So we could think about one, you know, the perhaps dominant one, there is no future with Maduro kind of narrative. And perhaps you know what basically this entails, but, you know, mostly people aligning with the opposition are saying this, right? Um, so if the current status quo remains, um, we continue with Maduro, we already know what's going to happen, right? It's further descent into chaos, further political instability, and, and probably death, right? Uh, and, and the way they use this narrative, but also they kind of want to produce this scenario too, right? With the support of the U.S., um, this is what we're seeing right now. Um, and and wanna, they want to sell this narrative, which is not hard, <laughs> at the present moment, um, to create a sense of a future that will be more certain, more stable, um, that a future that will be different, right? 
And I think that even if we're not politically aligned with this idea, uh, we cannot underestimate the power of this narrative right now in, in Venezuela, this kind of like effective landscape, political landscape that, that has emerged around the figure of Guaido, that we know, you know from his political allies that what this future might, we could sort of infer what, what it might look like, but they, they really leave it very vague. And I, and I think for a reason, right? So recently, Guaido was talking about, you know, this idea of a certain future, futuro seguro, right? That, um, that it's an aspiration right now because Venezuelans have lived in a state of uncertainty for so many years, too, right? Um, I mean, we can say that the crisis really started around 2012 and it deepened significantly 2017, but but there is a there's cer cer there's some certainties in this kind of uncertain landscape, and I think this goes with uh, what um, George was saying that you know there's been a permanent state of conflict, right, um, and a continued element of imperial aggr aggression, right. Sometimes more overt than others, but this has been uh, continuing. Um, and there's moments of eruption of these conflicts and then normalization, right? We can see this, and now we can also see a sort of intensification, right? Um, there's also the fact that this is a cyclical oil-dependent economy, right? With boom and bust cycles, um, which also influence these moments of conflict, eruption of conflict, and then normalization. And, but also another element that I want to highlight is that as of now, most Venezuelans have had to accept this state of uncertainty as sort of their everyday life. And I want us to think about the phenomenological kind of also cultural, social implications of what it means to be in this constant state of upheaval and uncertainty, right? And I think this has to do with this question of revolutionary transition that is hard in it. But, you know, I, I guess my question is how much can people actually endure? How, how resilient can people be? And I, and I ask this question because, you know, a lot of, you know, the, the second future that, that we think about is there, cannot, there can be no future without the revolution. And I think this is what most people who have been invested in these processes of participatory democracy and have worked really, really hard to make, you know, see these changes come about, right? This has been extremely time-consuming, energy-consuming. Um, and I thought this a lot about, you know, when I was doing research with an urban social movement because I was really actually impressed, right, with the amount of meetings, uh, <laughs> tasks, things that people are, and also balancing, you know, a regular kind of nine-to-five job and a family and all these things combined, right? Because as you say, like, Venezuela is still a capitalist society. So as activists, we're requesting people to, for example, invest large amounts of our volunteer work, they also had to rely on a paying job because this question of socialism was not settled, right? Uh, it's not settled. So um, they, they kind of had to be in between these two economies, juggling a lot of things. Um, 
And, and I think for, for many of these people, there is no future without the revolution, maybe because the other future that the opposition um, presents is also a future of like a tabula rasa, right? Like, a, like, let's start over from zero. You renounce being Chavista, we'll forgive you. <laughs> and, and let's just start over. And that if there's a kind of not so veiled language of eradication of Chavismo and um, eradication of Chavismo as a political force and ideology, but also as a people. Mm -hmm. And so this is a very, very dangerous future for uh, Chavistas, but also, you know, like community leaders who are very, very visible as well. And, and I also thought a lot about this because um, with the social movement that I work with, like, and, and you probably saw this too, like community activists, the majority of them are women too, at the grassroots level. The food soldiers of the revolution are women, right? Um, and, you know, uh, and, and I was also thinking about this idea of sacrifice, right? You have to sacrifice your time uh, for a better future, right? That's kind of the promise. Um, and in, in this way, like women as gender subjects were always asked, I think, more to sacrifice much more than men. Um, so um, I guess I, I, this is important for me in terms of thinking that, you know, some people are, are um, proposing that, okay, the only way future, is, the only way forward is with the revolution. What does that mean? I think it means, you know, going over some of the mistakes and the practices that have been very uh, <coughs> damaged, that have damaged a lot of these processes too. Um, but it, I think it also, I think it also has, invites us to think about this, I, I think it's like this drudgery factor, right? That, um, you know, there is, a state of drudgery, I think, right now. And, and what some people and the revolutionary, uh, more radical left, I guess, are proposing is that, it's that this, is an, the, this crisis is an opportunity to radicalize the revolution and move forward with, the, for example, the communal state, which was the sort of the future horizon that Chavez talked about toward the end. And, but it's never been really, um, clear if Maduro's government is actually going in that direction, right? So it, it has to, it, it would have to be the grassroots again, the ones who take that project on and, and again, this enormous amount of energy toward a new direction, right? I mean, it's not so new because we've been hearing about the communal state for a while and, and in a sense, the communal councils and all the other kinds of grassroots participatory experiences would sort of build into this communal state as kind of Chavez envisioned it. Um, but it's this question of, of drudgery that I think kind of limits the possibility that this will be the way forward, I think, in my, in my opinion. Um, we need solidarity, as uh, Gabriel uh, said, but we need a solidarity that engages with these complicated questions and that can account for these kind of like the nitty gritty of these participatory processes that Naomi and, and you guys have 
written about, actually, um, we have to really engage with those questions. And one thing for me was, for example, a very important how activists ask of people to like relinquish their personal interests and their personal kind of <laughs> desires, um, mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, and sacrifice for, for this greater good. But then, then the activists themselves did not do that, right? <laughs> because they either, there was some kind of they either had access to more resources, <laughs> or you know, there was this hierarchy between activists and the kind of food soldiers and rank and file, which were mostly women. Um, and, and this created a lot of discon discontent or you discontent, know, yeah. discontent yeah. and you know betrayal, kind of this feeling of each. And I can give some 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 practical like examples, but this sense of betrayal, and I think this is very strong right now, and this is why it's mm -hmm. also kind of hard to ask people to reactivate, you know, at this level. So I would leave so it. much. That was really fantastic. Um, I'll just throw out a couple questions. Um, this is really fun for me because I get to ask all the things that I struggle with and make you guys answer <laughs> But one of the things that I've been thinking about, and it's been sort of bizarre to watch um, in the United States, this conversation about the Green New Deal unfold um, and efforts to think about how do we decarbonize, how do we leave fossil fuels in the ground, um, how do we create, and in some sectors of this conversation, it's really focused on how do we create a just transition, right? How do we make it so that frontline communities who suffer the first and worst impacts of climate change um, are not unfairly shouldering the burden of uh, this effort to decarbonize. But what we see in Venezuela is a very unjust transition, in fact, happening right now where, um, you know, 500,000 barrels per day, you know, decline in production, um, and this has been happening over several years in terms of decline of oil production. But so it keeps striking me as how odd it is that this is. And it's not odd, actually. I think we need to put the pieces together, right? And, and, and I think the Green New Deal conversation is very focused, far too focused on the United States. Um, but how do we think about, um, you know, like a green new revolution? Or what, you know, how do we internationalize this conversation? And I think... Andre, you know, your points about drudgery, which is such an interesting word. Um, I'd love to hear more about what you, you know, I think you're really putting your finger on um, the, like, actual reality of the emotional and day-to-day -day lives of what this means to build this revolution constantly um, and the gender dimension of that. Um, so, on the one hand, it seems like, really too far-fetched to think about a green new revolution like what does it mean you know but what's happening is an undressed transition where people are dying today because we have you know this the sanctions the u.s sanctions are um you know decreasing the the production so i'm just curious what you guys think of that how you might connect some of those pieces yeah. I think, I mean i i think the oil question is really interesting in general um but also i'm Part of, I think, what I want to say is that the way that it's discussed and understood is, uh, I'm not being very clear, um, is, is, is kind of silly in some ways. I remember this one question one time, I was like, well, you know, if, you know, Chavismo, if the revolution claims to be environmental, why are they producing oil? Mm -hmm. And it's just like, that's, it's, it's almost like 10 degrees of complexity or cut out the equation, you know, at that point. Um, because, for example, uh, the... 
entire process in Venezuela is built on, first of all, the idea is to transition beyond oil. And this is a project that's been going on for uh, decades. Uh, again, with, in some ways, what you can understand to be very limited success. Um, but the, but the, the theory was there, right? And it's actually a theory that comes out of the late stages of the armed struggle where these guerrillas actually wrote a three-volume book about radical understandings of oil and how to use it to transition beyond oil. Um, and this became a, an important part of Chavista discourse. Um, those same people then, uh, many of them, uh, are put in charge of oil when Chavez comes to power. And the first thing they do is to reconstitute OPEC and drive up the price of oil uh, to 10 times what it had been worth previously, like huge spike in the price of oil. Again, it's not windfall. It's not the natural uh, you know, ups and downs of the oil economy. It's a political project to raise the price of oil. Now, when I said that these questions at the beginning are kind of silly, it's partly because the development of green alternative technology uh, was, uh, was facilitated and encouraged by nothing so much as the fact that this oil price had been driven up so high um, that alternatives were being sought um, and being developed at the same time that the Bolivarian process was supposed to be developing uh, domestic alternatives and production that would make dependence on oil less necessary. Right. And so you have all these things happening at, you know, at the same time and the complexity today around. And I haven't even thought about it in that way because I'm still thinking in terms of the, you know, the, the Orinoco belt and the, mm -hmm. the sort of on the one hand, dispossession of certain communities. On the other hand, environmental degradation that's going to come with that. Um, but literally the fact that now because of sanctions, that cannot even happen. Right. Um, and that even if we look deeper with the oil price as low as it is. Um, there are huge chunks of these confirmed oil reserves in Venezuela that are not accessible because they're not profitable at that price until the price rises above like $60 a barrel. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think the question of, again, of transition, but here we're talking about a different kind of transition mm -hmm. in some ways, mm -hmm. um, becomes all the more, uh, you know, acute. And I think, I mean, what you're pointing to, Naomi, is how... I mean, decarbonization is happening right now in Venezuela, um, mm -hmm. and it's incredibly draconian, unjust, mm -hmm. and it's you know practically genocidal in mm -hmm. terms of its consequences. That can't happen. That can't be a model mm -hmm. for thinking mm -hmm. about it. It has to be much more democratic. I think we have to talk about climate reparations. I think we have to talk about the colonialism that led places like Venezuela, Bolivia, and elsewhere to have extractivist models. Mm -hmm. I mean, this has deeply tied the entire global system, and uh, they didn't choose that. They were sort of blocked out of other things. I mean, in India, the British de-industrialized, you know, destroyed the sort of possibility in the 19th century. So that history has to be part of the conversation and the sort of gross inequality in terms of the historical levels of emissions that have happened. You know, there's what's happening now, but there's also what's happened over the last several centuries and who's more responsible for all of that. But just the suffering that's happening in Venezuela right now through, amongst other things, decarbonization, um, really shows that that has to be front and center and absolutely a sort of part of it. And places like Venezuela are really... You know, where oil sites are, you know, directly in oil workers too, obviously, but oil places that are dependent on those resources are going to be very directly affected if we actually get to decarbonization, which we have to. I mean, mm -hmm. it's not a, something we can avoid, but it, yeah, it gets to that. And it's, yeah, it's a very good thing to think about. Yeah, I, I was sort of thinking about that. Um, <laughs> Because these like these futures that you can think about, neither the opposition or, or the government are thinking about right. a post-extractivist mm -hmm. right. future, right? Mm -hmm. right? So right. it's very hard for Venezuelans <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to renounce, 
to because you know what Coronel wrote about was this international division of, of nature, right? Mm -hmm. So this is kind of our lot in, in the international economy. And yeah. why not use it to our advantage, right? right? If we can drive mm -hmm. development, this has been like the ongoing discourse. Right. Um, and and even more recently the the controversy around the Arco Minero, which I don't know if you guys know about, but it's like a more recent drive to mine gold and diamonds and in the Amazonian park. And and this created a big rift within Chavismo itself, right, where um, people more, you know, who actually did believe in this um, promise of um, Eco-socialismo, eco-socialism, mm -hmm. with the which the government tried to push for some time, but then kind of left. <laughs> yeah. Like many things, you know, they start with this kind of campaign, and then nothing yeah. happened. And so, but this, this was, and I had some pretty intense discussions with people, and it was like, this is kind of has to be the future, right? Um, but they were like, but this is what we have now, so why not use it now to? generate the conditions for, so this is the, the yeah. thing, like the constant sacrifice of the present because of yeah. the future that never really comes, right? So, I don't know, it's, it's yeah. Can I say, this is, this is a good example, I think, also because it really points towards some of these complexities where I had a very good eco-socialist comrade who made an argument that I was not expecting because his argument was, listen, this is being mined already, right? This is being mined by informal mafias, this is being mined every single day. And so he was like, the Arco Minero. So his, he was just like, well, why, why should we not be taking, you know, harnessing that for our own development? Mm -hmm. But it also points toward, I think, what a lot of us, I think, believe in, which is, you know, uh, sort of indirect Venezuelan alternatives to global capitalism, right? So one of the, for me, the key examples of the, you know, of sort of the political orientation of certain elements of the, of the bureaucracy was this moment in, I'm trying to remember what year it was, 2005, six, seven, when fa uh, workers occupied a factory that made valves, right? Yeah. It was called Inveval, uh, and they made large valves. Yeah. And these valves were for the oil industry. Yeah. Uh, yeah. They, they put it into worker-managed production to produce these valves. Mm -hmm. And PDVSA, the oil company, said, thank you, but no thank you, we're not going to buy your valves, right? And essentially doomed that experiment in direct worker-controlled uh, you know, production. Mm -hmm. What is happening in the crisis today of the oil industry is that with, without access to oil income and without access to sources for things like these valves, um, oil production is collapsing because of bad maintenance, because of you know, lack of access to these things. And so you see the situation where uh, hostility to workers' control and direct democracy completely is biting the process in the ass, right? And undermining the ability to even sustain itself because these are the kinds of things that would have helped it yeah. to be sort of self-sufficient. 